Welcome back to the Women's Wellness Podcast by the Women's Wellness Research Collaborative, a podcast where we talk about women's health needs throughout every stage of life, from young women through to midlife women, women's health after a cancer diagnosis, and women who are living with type 2 diabetes. On this podcast, you'll hear from some of the world's leading researchers in women's health. I'm Professor Deborah Anderson, the founder and director of the Women's Wellness Research Collaborative and Dean of the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. I've spent my career dedicated to helping women be the best they can be. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Balam from the University of Queensland. Dr. Balam is an accredited practicing dietitian and a research fellow at the University of Queensland, who is currently overseeing the Emerald Study also known as the Younger Women's Wellness After Cancer Feasibility Study. Dr. Balam's research aims to enhance the wellness of cancer survivors and specifically focus on the consumption of alcohol and associated health behaviours following a diagnosis of breast cancer. Thanks so much for joining me on the Women's Wellness Podcast today, Sarah. Thanks for the introduction, Debbie, and thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to having a chat with you today. Well, look, alcohol and women's health, that's a big hot potato. And I think when we're talking about alcohol and women, some of the messages are not very welcome about their relationship with cancer. So Sarah, I'd like you to start by talking about the relationship between alcohol and cancer before, during and after treatment. Can you tell us a little bit about what the latest research is telling us? Sure, Debbie. I should probably start saying that alcohol is not something that everyone wants to talk about, as you mentioned, and that perhaps we don't want to talk about it because we don't drink, or perhaps more importantly, because we do drink and we don't really want to know about the potential cancer-related risks that can be involved. But that said, it is important to hear about the latest evidence-based research so you can make that informed decision and then you can choose how you want to drink because sometimes just making small changes can really make a big difference to your overall health. So Debbie, to answer your question, I guess we need to understand a few things about alcohol first. Alcohol was actually ranked as a group one carcinogen in 1988 by the World Health Organization. And this means that it's actually a substance that like, it's likely to cause cancer. So to put that into perspective, Cigarette smoking is also ranked as a group one carcinogen. And when I'm talking about this, it's not something that's widely known. Uh, everyone knows the branding on cigarette packets. Everyone knows how dangerous smoking can be. But when it comes to alcohol, it's just not there. The message is not out there. So I'm talking about the pure ethanol component of alcohol here, not about the type of drink that you have. It's not about beer, wine or spirits. It makes no difference when we're considering actual cancer risk. So it's, it's the pure alcohol component. Importantly, I guess, alcohol consumption doesn't need to be excessive or abusive in nature for it to actually be harmful. And it's that regular drinking that can still harm and can increase your risk of developing cancers of not only the breast, but mouth, throat, your larynx, your voice box, your esophagus, liver, cancer, colon, rectum. And there's also some evidence to suggest stomach cancers. So primarily my work has been focusing on the relationship between alcohol and breast cancer and primarily in that after treatment phase. Often we go to the World Cancer Research Fund that have cancer prevention recommendations and around alcohol consumption, their recommendation is to limit alcohol consumption and for cancer prevention, it's best not to drink. In relation to development of breast cancer specifically, 
there is strong evidence that alcoholic drinks can actually increase the risk of both pre and postmenopausal breast cancers. So the World Cancer Research Fund have a continuous update report that brings in the latest research. And they actually have a report on diet, nutrition and physical activity and breast cancer. This report has actually pulled some of the data and looked at the dose response relationship between alcohol and breast cancer. And it found that for postmenopausal breast cancer, there was a 9% increased risk for every 10 gram increase in alcohol consumption per day. So what does that mean? <laughs> well, it means that for postmenopausal women who drink, they actually have a 9% increased risk of developing breast cancer with each drink that they have. And this is compared to postmenopausal women who do not drink. So this is a similar statistic for premenopausal women, except that the risk is slightly less. So it's 5% instead of the 9%. To put this in perspective here for you, when I talk about a 10 gram increment of alcohol, 10 grams of pure ethanol is what we consider our standard Australian drink. So that's 100 mils of red wine or white wine. So obviously it depends on the percentages of alcohol, but often that's the standard amount. So next time you go to the bar and you order a drink, there's, you know, they often ask, is that a large or a small drink? And when you look at that small drink, that is your standard drink. So when you're pouring it at home, often you're not having that standard drink. It's just something to keep in mind. And we don't think about that. We tend to just go and have a few drinks. But what you think you might be having two drinks, you may actually be having four. Yeah. And that's something yeah. that we don't always think about. It's important to remember here that many breast cancers are hormonally driven and that alcohol can actually raise the estrogen levels by interfering with that estrogen metabolism in the body. So this, is, this may explain some of the increased risk that we see. But there's also some indirect ways in which alcohol consumption can influence cancer risk. And I suppose alcohol itself, it's nutritionally poor. It's energy dense and it can actually decrease bone health, which is very important for women. And consumption of alcohol can also contribute to excessive weight gain, which again, this has a detrimental effect on hormonal balance and is another risk factor for breast cancer. So as you can see, we're kind of tying in all these things in the way that alcohol is detrimentally affecting the human body and especially the female human body. Alcohol also tends to have this synergistic relationship with other lifestyle factors. So there are things like smoking, a high fat diet and having low dietary folate intake. And those three things alone actually all have chances to increase our cancer risk again. It doesn't play nicely, <laughs> we could say. Absolutely. Um, sorry, Debbie, going back to your question here. So we're talking about alcohol and the alcohol cancer relationship during treatment and after treatment as well. Just then I've talked about pre-cancer. Now, the information or the research is not so clear when it comes to during treatment and after, but we do know that it is alcohol is implicated in breast cancer recurrence as well. So it's just not as clear yet. I don't think there's been as much research done in those areas. What is, I guess, a positive note is that it's important to say that our behaviours can certainly change even if we can't change the risk. So alcohol consumption, what we talk about is a modifiable health behaviour. This is something that it's not genetically predisposed. We can change this and it's our choice to do so. So that's really important. And that's what much of my research has been on, looking at the behaviour that's associated with alcohol consumption following breast cancer. 
I know you've been working with the Women's Wellness Program and the Women's Wellness After Cancer Program for a long time now. I certainly have. <laughs> you, did your, you did your professional doctor, you know, your PhD with us, mm -hmm. uh, with the program as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the findings from the Women's Wellness After Cancer Program randomised controlled trial in the area that you specialised in, which was that alcohol and cancer? Yes, for sure. So we've recently published a study on that, our paper, sorry, and that was on the quantitative findings of just the alcohol consumption. And I'm in the process of actually writing up some qualitative findings. So I had the pleasure, and it was great to interview 17 participants that I got to talk to about their alcohol consumption. So these were women who had actually been through the Women's Wellness After Cancer program. It was a 12-week healthy lifestyle program and it was designed for women after cancer treatment. So our program was delivered virtually and it was supported by a specialist breast cancer nurse who provided multiple consultations throughout the 12-week period. During this time, each participant received tailored advice on all aspects of health and well-being following their breast cancer treatment. Uh, I say breast cancer because the women that I spoke to we're more focused on breast cancer, but we also looked at women who had gynecological cancers and blood cancers. So this is when the program was in its clinical phase. It was being trialled out clinically. And what our breast cancer nurse did was talk to these participants about how to deal with treatment-induced menopausal symptoms, how to improve sleep quality, managing stress, sexuality and relationships post-cancer, cessation of cigarette smoking and alcohol minimisation, and of course, how to create healthy lifestyles so healthy dietary and exercise habits that actually last, which is probably some of the key things, you know, you want to have behaviours that change, but that we are sustainable. The findings that I've, I've come out of this with is that when I spoke to our participants about their relationship with alcohol following cancer, we had so much information that came out of this. It was really exciting. And these are lovely participants and I can't thank them enough. But firstly, and probably a bit disturbingly, not many were aware about the relationship between alcohol as a risk factor for cancer or that it was causally linked to breast cancer development. And other than being in the Women's Wellness Program, some of them hadn't received any information or perhaps it wasn't adequate enough. And then we even had some women who said, you know what, I could have heard that information, but it was so overwhelming that I didn't take notice because I had so much other stuff going on at the time. We also found that many women didn't no, we didn't recognize what a standard drink was. So as I've just spoken to you, the standard drink is really important to get it in your head. It's quite small. So it was interesting when, when the women said, oh, we might have a couple of bottles of wine a week. You go, well, if you think about a standard drink, if you have one bottle of wine, that's technically, if it's 750 ml, that's technically seven and a half drinks. It's a hard one because we've got so many uh, social norms, especially in Australia about drinking culture and here we had women who had just you know been through this life-changing experience and they just wanted to return to some kind of normal as they would say by having a drink and it just made their behavior changes or minimizing alcohol intake more difficult because you had different things you had to deal with but i suppose the important thing was to to advise them about this I will say also that from the interview findings, I had women who actually expressed that having a drink at night would exacerbate their hot flushes, night sweats sometimes, and then also their sleep quality. 
So it was interesting to hear that. And then because we've just recently published in uh, was cancer, cancer nursing, sorry, it was actually good to see in our quantitative results that we, we backed that up. And it actually came out that yes, the interview findings were confirmed and that the increased vasomotor symptoms, so hot flushes and night sweats, their severity was actually associated with increased alcohol consumption. You know, it's fascinating findings. And I'm wondering, I can see from the introduction, I know you're overseeing the Emerald study, which was the Younger Women's Wellness After Cancer Feasibility Study. What are you finding that's different if, with the younger women as opposed to the uh, midlife and older women that were in the Women's Wellness After Cancer? Or are, are there any differences or not? Good question, Debbie. The Emerald study is only recently opened up. So we've only just started getting people through for that. But the program itself has more of a focus on, I suppose, the younger women and more of a focus on fertility and getting back to work and having young families to deal with while going through this experience. So I guess our support has changed more. The focus of support has changed. And like I said, these programs are ta like they're tailored. So although there's a range of topics that are spoken about, it's really important that if someone says, hey, look, I really need a hand with talking about my menopausal symptoms, or I'm more interested in what I'm eating at the moment because I'm so confused, I don't know what to eat. Then we focus on those things as well. Um, but yes, it's more so about the, I suppose, fertility concerns that are in there too for those younger populations. Mm -hmm. And the alcohol component will be really important of course, for and them to understand for the younger women as well. That's right, because it's more of a social norm to have, have those drinks. Um, just going back on the other results, we actually had in my interviews, a couple of women who said they, they recognise now looking back that they were actually using alcohol as a coping mechanism. And even one of those people I spoke to was in the control group. So she didn't do the program as such at the time, but just by talking to us and doing surveys about diet, she actually realised that, hey, I'm drinking far too much. And now I've just realised what a standard drink is. And she was able to regulate that herself and change her habits. So come up with some other strategies, which these women's, women were brilliant as coming up with strategies to, to not drink or to, to minimise, because it's hard to say have nothing at all. Yeah, brilliant. Um, that's really good news. And of course, if if people are interested in looking at uh, enrolling in that study, there is a, a on our link that we'll give at the end of the session. They can go to that and uh, look brilliant. at that that study. So excessive alcohol consumption can sometimes be linked to stress, anxiety, and depression symptoms, often exacerbated by cancer treatment. How do you think clinicians and family members can support women during this process to better manage these symptoms? And what are some of the other ways that we can support, women can access support? From our findings, support was integral to any behaviour change. And if these women were having concerns, if there were more detrimental concerns about high anxiety or stress, depression, then that was something obviously they needed to go to their um, GP about and talk about. But for other concerns exactly. in terms of changing their diet and just instilling those new behaviours, then the support that was most important to them was those home supports. So close family and friends. We did have some participants that said, I really want to change my alcohol consumption. I really want to reduce it. But my husband keeps buying alcohol and bringing it into the house. I've asked him not to. It's those little things like if you're on this, I don't like to use the word journey all the time, but on this journey to behaviour change, it's really nice if someone supports you and recognises that, hey, if you're not having a drink, I won't have a drink tonight. Either. Yeah, 
and yeah. it makes it so much easier for someone to, to change and to keep it to keep the behavior change so in this case your closest support so your friends and family obviously you've got all your medical supports coming out of treatment is a difficult time because you've had all these people surrounding you constant attention and then you've got nothing so and that that's why we came up with the women's wellness and debbie with the women's wellness after cancer program um, to offer that support and to get that into a clinical space uh, but there's also other support networks out there there's plenty through social media but then you've got other breast cancer networks as well the formalized ones i can remember talking to some women who said that uh mineral water was fantastic, sparkling mineral water, because they would use that with a, a slice of lime and some mm -hmm. ice cubes put in a wine glass and her and her husband would change to that. And they started every second night and then they were doing it five nights a week and that's just, it. you know, weekend. So, so there's strategies and, and different things. I think yeah. that you're right. And that support mechanism of families and friends mm -hmm. and sisters and brothers, yeah. you know, it's just so, so important. You know, if they know you're on the journey, you can, um, they can help you with it. That's right. We had um, real tangible strategies. I said, well, when do you drink? And she said, well, I have a glass of wine while I'm preparing dinner. I yes. have another one while I'm eating dinner and then I'll have one in front of the TV afterwards. So then she's like, now <laughs> you know decided she's brushing her teeth immediately after dinner no more yes. yes or someone else is going for a walk immediately after dinner instead of sitting down and watching tv and having a drink and then we have the drink modification like you were talking about debbie so they might put cranberry juice in a in a special glass with some soda water make yes. it special spring of mint you know yes. it's it's changing your mindset yeah and i think it's not doing it you know, it doesn't all have to happen in the next day. You, no. you set in places. I think that's what, what we were doing with the 12 weeks. Let's mm -hmm. start this week and have one glass of mineral water before you're preparing dinner instead of that, that wine. And then let's replace that with cleaning your teeth. So you're down from three to one, et cetera. You okay. know, great strategies. Um, so, you know, we can't let you go being our practicing dietitian. Um, <laughs> without talking about eating well. And eating well is something we all know is good for us. But what are some of the things women, particularly in midlife, should consider as part of their daily meal plan, Sarah? So calcium is particularly important for bone health. And this is because as we age, we're at greater risk of developing osteoporosis. So this is weakened bones. And this can result in bone breaks or fractures. In fact, one in three women over the age of 50 is actually at risk of a bone break and it's caused by osteoporosis. So to reduce our risk, we really need to up our calcium intake and dairy products are, are a primary source for this. So for postmenopausal women, we should aim for 1300 milligrams of calcium per day. And for premenopausal women, that's reduced at 1000 milligrams a day. And this can come from say reduced fat milk, yogurt, cheeses, and for those women who can't tolerate dairy or perhaps they don't like dairy, it's important to get these from other sources. So we really want to look at canned fish and include the bones in that. Vegetables, so broccoli, spinach, carrots, cabbage, fruits such as oranges, apples, peach, pears, and uh, nuts and seeds, your almonds and your sesame seeds, and eggs and tofus. Sometimes if calcium is not enough, then we can move to a supplement. But it's always good to start with whole foods. We don't want to go supplementing everything because it's not giving us, well, it's not filling our bellies and it's, it's certainly not taking us where we want to go. So just a note on calcium too, it's also important that we have enough vitamin D. 
So this is very important as it helps our body absorb the calcium that we're eating in our food and also weight bearing exercises. Very important if we want to strengthen our bones. Alongside calcium, there's always plenty of fresh fruit and vegetables and whole grains. So in terms of menopausal symptoms, we actually know that a high fiber, low fat and low salt diet that's um, high in phytoestrogens, which are in our um, high fiber, can actually, it's been found to reduce many symptoms of menopause. So these are our hot flushes. And good sources of these include our soy products like tofu, soy milk, chickpeas, flax seeds, lentils, cracked wheat, and barley. So nothing to put a bit of a sprinkle of flaxseed on your cereal in the morning with your low-fat milk. In fact, that's my go-to. I find that such an easy thing to do, adding the flaxseed to my muesli. Yeah, it's just, just a little thing done every day and you're getting some in there. The other important thing is water. I think people forget about water. They think about diet, but they don't, they're just thinking about the food, you know? So water is so incredibly important. Our bodies are made up of 50 to 75% water. And in the cooler months, it's hard to drink more. It's a vital nutrient and most of our body, our bodily functions need water to function. Yeah, women should have at least two liters a day. So that's about eight glasses. And of course, if you're exercising or if you're, um, you know, hot outside, then you need more. Yeah, I guess on that, Sarah, I know that we've found that women who, who are thirsty will often eat. And if they've had a glass of water or two, often they find that they start, once they get that water, water established, they start to lose weight because they're not eating when they're thirsty. So I think the first thing we often do with women is, is get that hydration right first. You know, plus, right. all, plus the alcohol and the coffee, which is um, also um, draining their body of fluids, you know. So therefore what you find is you've got these midlife women who are, are drinking a lot of coffee, a lot of alcohol, they're absolutely dehydrated. And so they're, they're feeling it with food instead of with water. That's right. And once the thirst mechanism kicks in, it actually your body's actually already dehydrated, starting to be dehydrated. Your body's going, you know what, give me water. So Sarah, that's great. And that's for, for women, you know, midlife women. But what about for those after cancer treatment? Is there anything specific that they should be doing in their eating patterns that could benefit them? We tend to have much the same advice. So it's really important still to have that calcium intake, I guess. But there's also some additional focus on reducing the risk of recurrence of breast cancer. So the research is not clearly identified specific food groups here that are, I so the evidence once again for post-cancer is not as strong and simply because there hasn't been enough work done in this area. There is limited evidence, however, to suggest that healthy diet pattern, so healthy dietary pattern can actually reduce the risk of mortality in breast cancer survivors, whereas the Western diet, which is often characterized by high intake of processed foods, high fat dairy and red or processed meats, that it may actually increase our risk of, of recurrence. So we recommend that women have um, maintain a healthy diet following cancer. There's also limited evidence that suggests that higher dietary fiber intake, either prior to uh, your diagnosis or following diagnosis is beneficial in reducing our risk of overall mortality. So we need to encourage diets that are really rich in dietary fiber. And in saying that we should be aiming for about 25 grams per day so that's whole grain breads, cereals, fruits, vegetables, and legumes. So these are really the, the bulk foods I think about fiber as bulk foods and things that are going to fill us up and keep us going for the day. Also important there, and again, the evidence is there, but it's not as strong yet, is about um, intake of soy and isoflavones. 
So these may improve our outcomes again with recurrence and in terms of survival after breast cancer. So isoflavins, they are generally found in legumes. They're nothing special. They've been around for a long time. They're found in legumes and in the highest concentration in soybeans and soy products. So it's important to get them in the day. I guess finally, I referred to the World Cancer Research Fund earlier and their recommendations for cancer prevention. So even post-cancer, we still work to those recommendations. So we want to make sure that these women are healthy weight, that they're physically active, that they eat more whole grains, vegetables, fruits and legumes, as we just said, that they avoid those sugary drinks and they limit their fast foods, or we call them sometimes foods or discretionary foods now, and other processed foods that are really high in fat, starches and sugars. Also, of course, we want to limit their consumption of red meats and processed meats and avoid alcohol, as I've harped on about a lot. And again, not to rely on supplements. So if you're not getting it through your diet, perhaps go and talk to your GP, but it's best to always try and get these nutrients that you need through your diet. A great way to achieve any dietary change is getting that right information first. Then you can work towards getting the right supports to help you put those changes in place. And the Women's Wellness is a great way to do that. So it offered that structured support to these women. So we're really hoping to get it out there in a clinical space that it can be offered to everyone. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's just, we're so lucky to have such an excellent wealth of uh, research around this area of alcohol and dietary requirements for women after cancer and also women in general. Just such excellent research that you've been doing and we really want to wish you well on the uh, Younger Women's Wellness After Cancer Study as well. I hope that goes really well and we'd love to get you back on the podcast when you've got those results to talk about specifically what we could do for younger women. Thanks, Debbie. It's been great to be a part of it. Today, I've been speaking on the podcast with Dr. Sarah Balam from the University of Queensland. Thank you so much for being part of our Women's Wellness Research Collaborative podcast today. And you've been listening to the Women's Wellness Podcast Series from the Women's Wellness Research Collaborative. You can find us at wellnessresearch.org.au.